What a joy it is to sing together. Thank you so much, Joe and team, for leading us in song this day. And we now come to the preaching of God's word. And so if you would, open your copy of God's word to John chapter 16. This has been just a marvelous portion of scripture for us to be diving into the the farewell discourse of our Lord. And this passage that we're in today, rightly understood, is incredibly significant, especially as it relates to the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is completely concentrated on three interrelated realities. To reveal the truth, to enable us to comprehend the truth, and to glorify Christ by means of the truth. Which is to say, the ministry of the Spirit is entirely centered on both the truth and the glory of Christ. Even to the extent the Spirit isn't doing anything that's disconnected or inconsistent with either one. And since Jesus declares himself to be the truth, John 14, 6, both he and the truth are inseparable. And that means both the truth and the glory of Christ are inseparable. And so this passage is incredibly significant and is absolutely critical to identifying the true work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so look with me at verses 12 to 15. There our Lord says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Jesus has just announced the advantage of his departure to the disciples, and it's to their advantage because unless he goes, the Spirit would not come. And they desperately needed the ministry of the Spirit if they were going to fulfill the mission entrusted to them. And the advantage we saw last time relates to the convicting ministry of the Spirit. That the Spirit would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and would do so in accord with the testifying ministry of the disciples where even that aspect of the Spirit's ministry is inseparable from the truth and the glory of Christ. Well, now Jesus highlights another advantage, one that is succinctly expressed in verse 13, where Jesus says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So not only would the spirit convict the world, he would guide the disciples into all the truth. And to rightly understand this promise, it is important to know that it's made specifically to the disciples. This isn't a promise made to believers in general, though it's most definitely advantageous to all believers everywhere. Instead, this is a promise that finds its fulfillment in the lives of the apostles. 
You see, this promise finds its fulfillment in the writing of the New Testament, in which all of the truth concerning Christ is recorded, whereby in it we have everything pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. So this isn't a promise of ongoing, never-ending revelation. It's a promise that relates directly to the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20. And you only lay a foundation once. Does this promise have implications for us? It absolutely does. But it's the difference between inspiration and illumination. The Spirit superintended the disciples' involvement in the writing of God-breathed Scripture. That's inspiration. The Spirit then takes that revelation and enables us to understand it, comprehend it. That's illumination. So we aren't anticipating any further revelation. Instead, we're preoccupied with studying that which has already been given, being entirely dependent on the Spirit to be faithful in that study. And in light of the immense confusion surrounding the ministry of the Spirit, we need to be able to identify his true ministry. That which truly is the work and ministry of the Spirit. And in our passage today, we're gonna see three features of the ministry of the Spirit. Three features of the ministry of the Spirit that we would have discernment to be able to identify the work he's actually doing the work he's actually engaged in. And to give you a foretaste, we're gonna see the enabling ministry of the Spirit in verse 12, the speaking ministry of the Spirit in verse 13, and the glorifying ministry of the Spirit in verses 14 and 15. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first, the enabling ministry of the Spirit. The enabling ministry of the Spirit. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus had many more things to say to his disciples, but they couldn't bear them at that time. And they couldn't bear them because they lacked the ability. Rendered more literally, Jesus says, but you are not able to bear them now. In this moment, the disciples were confused grieved and distressed. Jesus has already said back in verse six, sorrow has filled your heart. They didn't know where Jesus was going. They didn't know why he was leaving. And as we saw last time, they were preoccupied with what everything meant for them. They were consumed with a self-centeredness. And so they needed the enabling power of the Holy Spirit whereby following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the Spirit would come and enable them to understand everything. And there's an important observation to make here, one that anticipates what Jesus says in verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, note this, I have many more things to say to you. That means that when the Spirit had come, he would function as the mouthpiece of who? Of Jesus. And therefore wouldn't speak from himself, verse 13, but would take of that which belongs to Jesus and would disclose it to the disciples, verse 14. 
And so the revelatory ministry of the Spirit is a continuation of the revelatory ministry of Christ, whereby the Spirit takes up the baton of that ministry on his behalf. Now, the enabling ministry of the Spirit referenced here speaks specifically to that which the disciples couldn't bear, namely the more things that Jesus had to say to them. But we can go from there and we can amplify the enabling ministry of the Spirit. We can see the disciples needed the Spirit's enablement to to bear up under the things that Jesus had to say to them. And from there, we can expand that and amplify throughout Scripture the, the enabling ministry of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And so let's do that. The Spirit enables us to understand the truth. We saw this last time. This is illumination, 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. The things freely given to us by God is that that is recorded in the word of God. And the spirit is given to us to be able to understand that revelation. The spirit is given to illuminate the truth of the word of God. And so he enables us to understand the truth. In addition, the spirit enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. He enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Listen to Romans 8, 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is the Spirit of God in the believer who enables us to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death that which is sinful in us. In a similar vein, He enables us to overcome the desires of the flesh. We saw this last time as well, Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That means that where the spirit is operative in a believer's life or in a church's life, you're going to see that there is an overcoming of the desire of the flesh. That those who are walking by the spirit are those who are walking in holiness and aren't yielding to the sinful passions within. They're they're overcoming those things. And as such, he enables us to live an obedient life. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working in us by his spirit to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we are then to work out that which the spirit of God is working in. And so the spirit of God is working on the inside of us to to will and to work in accord with the will of God. And so he enables us to live a life of obedience. Listen to how Galatians 2.20 expresses this. Paul declares this, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so we live by Christ who lives in us and he lives in us by whom? The indwelling spirit. And so the life that we now live, we live by the life of Christ. Furthermore, the spirit of God enables us to manifest the character of Christ. This is a repeat of last time as well, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And so the spirit is at work in our lives to bear the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the spirit is the character of Christ. Furthermore, he enables us by strengthening us in the inner man. Another repeat from last time, Ephesians 3.16. Paul prays that the Father would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. It is the spirit who empowers us in the inner man to live the lives we're called to live. In addition, he enables us to carry out the work of the ministry, the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the truth. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, listen to this. Paul says, we proclaim him, referring to Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. And then he says this, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The apostle Paul did all that he did by the power that came to him in the person of the Holy Spirit. He was striving by that power as he labored in the, the ministry of the gospel. Listen to how he says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He declares, for I am least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The apostle Paul acknowledges God's grace as that which enables him to do all that he did. And that enabling grace comes to him in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so it is critical to be cognizant of the enabling ministry of the Spirit, to be aware that you are dependent on the Spirit's power to live the Christian life, on the Spirit's power to pray, on the Spirit's power to read your Bible, on the Spirit's power to obey, on the Spirit's power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You need to be aware of this. You need to be cognizant of it. In John 15, 5, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's by the enabling power of the spirit that we abide. And it's the spirit who channels the life-giving nutrients of the vine into our lives. And so being well-versed in the enabling ministry of the spirit isn't just crucial to being able to identify his true work in ministry. It's critical to live the Christian life. 
And the marks of his enabling work are clear and evident and unmistakable. Now, the fact that Jesus had many more things to say to the disciples sets the stage for the second feature of the ministry of the Spirit, namely the speaking ministry of the Spirit, the speaking ministry of the Spirit. After all, if Jesus wasn't going to be around, someone would have to speak on his behalf and it would be the Spirit who would do so. Look at verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak in his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now we're gonna break this down a little bit and we're gonna do so by answering who, what, and how. So first, note who. It says there, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, Jesus identifies the spirit as the spirit of truth. And I wanna highlight again, the way the spirit is described in relationship to the truth throughout this discourse. And so look at John 14, verse 16. We're in the final of five passages on the spirit of God. And so it's fitting now to, to rehearse the teaching on the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth. So there also Jesus identifies the spirit as the spirit of truth. And we know from 1 John 5, 6, that John says in that epistle, the spirit is the truth. And so the relationship between the spirit and the truth, again, as it is with Christ, is inseparable. Look at John 14, 26. John 14, 26. There it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So if the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, what will he teach and call to the remembrance of the disciples? The truth, amen? John 15, 26, look at that. John 15, 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth, there it is again, who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. So if the spirit is the spirit of truth and Jesus declares himself to be the truth, then what does the spirit testify of? The truth. And now John 16 and verse seven and following, Jesus says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So if the spirit is the spirit of truth and Jesus declares himself to be the truth, what does the spirit ultimately convict the world of? The truth. And then here now, in the portion of scripture we're in, the spirit of truth will guide the disciples into all the truth, will speak all the truth and will disclose all the truth. And so it should be abundantly obvious that everything the spirit does, he does in accord with the what? The truth. And so whenever someone claims the spirit is active in some way, ask yourself this, is it consistent with the truth? 
Because if it isn't, it isn't the work of the Spirit. But let's pose this question, what? What's the promise to the disciples with respect to the Spirit's ministry? Next part of verse 13, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. The word guide in a physical sense means to assist in reaching a desired destination and can also be rendered lead. And if we were to picture all the truth as a final destination, that would be fitting. In fact, that translates well into the figurative sense the word is being used or the word has here where it means to assist someone in acquiring information or knowledge. And so the promise is the spirit will guide the disciples into all the truth by imparting the truth to them. Now, again, what does Jesus declare of himself? He says, I am the way and the what? The truth. So if the spirit guides the disciples into all the truth, what is he guiding them into? A complete and accurate knowledge of who? Jesus. And why is that so critical? Because to see Jesus is to see who? The Father. The Son is the supreme revelation of the Father. And so the Spirit would reveal Christ more fully to them. And as he did so, they would see the Father more clearly. And as we devote ourselves to the same revelation given to us in the word of God, we too will experience the same reality. The more clearly we see Jesus, the more fully and clearly we'll see the Father. And so whenever someone claims the spirit is active in some way, ask yourself this, is it consistent with the truth as revealed in Jesus? Is it consistent with the truth as revealed in Jesus? Because if it isn't, it isn't the work of the spirit. But let's pose this question, how? How would the Spirit guide them into all the truth? He would do so by what? By speaking. Next part of verse 13, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So the Holy Spirit is going to speak. And the language here should sound very familiar since he won't speak on his own initiative. Why is that familiar? It's the exact same way the speaking ministry of Jesus is described. And I want you to feel the, the weight of this. Turn with me to John 3 for a minute. I want to show you six passages that describe the speaking ministry of Jesus and really solidify the continuity between his speaking ministry and the speaking ministry of the Spirit. In John 3, 34 and following, it says this. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Whom had God sent? Sent the Son. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. And here's the, 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 the ground of that. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And so Jesus speaks the words of God. Look at John 5. In verse 19 and following, this is gonna be a statement about the works that Jesus does, but the works and the words of Jesus are again inseparable. John 5, 19, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing 
For whatever the father does, these things the son does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And as you work through these portions that we're gonna look at now, you're gonna see that the works and the words of Jesus are very closely related, yes, inseparable. Look at John 7, 16 and following. It says, so Jesus answered and said, answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. That's very interesting because Jesus is not seeking, was not seeking the glory of himself, but the glory of the father. The father had sent the son into the world. He comes into the world seeking the glory of the father. Jesus is described as the one who will send the spirit. He sends the spirit into the world and the spirit comes and glorifies who? The son. And as we'll see, he does that to the glory of who? The father. Look at John 8, 26 and following. following. John 8, 26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said, verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, including what he speaks, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He is speaking the very things the Father has given him to speak. Look at John 12, 47 and following. Two more to go. John 12, verse 47 and following. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to, the, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the father has told me. Jesus came speaking not from himself, not speaking on his own initiative, but rather speaking that which was given him to speak. And lastly, John 14 and verse 10. This is in the upper room during the farewell discourse. Jesus says in response to Philip, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. And so the words and the works of Jesus are inseparable, both being that which are not done on his own initiative, but rather are done in accord with the will of God. So if the spirit doesn't speak literally from himself, but only speaks what he hears, then there's perfect continuity between the ministry of the son and the ministry of the Spirit, since both speak from the Father. And since the Spirit doesn't speak from himself, but only that which he hears, he speaks inerrantly, infallibly, and authoritatively. The Spirit of God is incapable of error. 
And notice the final clause of verse 13, which says, and he will disclose to you what is to come. To disclose is another speaking verb and can also be rendered announce or proclaim. And here, the content of this announcement is what is to come. So the question is, what does this refer to? Does it refer to prophecy concerning the future? Predictive prophecy? Or does it refer to revelation in general? And the answer is it refers to both. And we know that because the fulfillment of the promise made here to the disciples is the writing of the New Testament. And the New Testament includes both. But here's the thing. All revelation bound up in the New Testament is a revelation of who? Of Christ. And that's because he's the climax of all revelation. Everything prior to him reached its climax in him and everything that follows after simply fills that revelation out further. And so the supreme revelation of God being Christ makes Christ the pinnacle of all revelation. Because again, to see him is to see who? The Father. And so whenever someone claims the Spirit is active in some way, ask yourself this, is it consistent with the inerrant, infallible, and authoritative teaching of Scripture? Because if it isn't, it isn't the Spirit. Now, the implications of what's taught here in verse 3 are significant. And these are implications that you may not necessarily be able to download the full import of in this moment, but as you understand the significance of this passage more clearly and really the teaching of the word of God, the things that I'm about to say will be clearer and clearer to you. For one, consider what happens if you don't limit this promise to the disciples. Consider what happens if you don't limit this promise to the disciples. The promise made here is that the spirit would infallibly guide the disciples into all the truth. And so if this promise isn't limited to the apostles being fulfilled in the writing of the New Testament, how do you account for theological disunity in the church? Was there any disunity theologically among the apostles? No. Any theological question you have, you could have posed to any one of the apostles and they would have given you an accurate answer. Eschatology, the gifts of the spirit, Whatever the issue is, there was perfect unity among the apostles because they were the ones through whom the revelation of Christ more fully came. And so if this promise were made to us, there wouldn't be any theological disunity in the church today, none. For two, consider the implications of this for ongoing revelation. If the New Testament is the realization and fulfillment of all the truth, what need is there for further revelation? Especially when those who claim to receive that revelation are so disinterested in the word of truth, the word of God, the very scriptures themselves, that which we know is infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. There is absolutely no need for further revelation. All we need to do is to more fully comprehend the revelation that's been given. 
We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. And for three, consider what this means for the authority of the epistles. Consider what this means for the authority of the epistles. If the New Testament is the fulfillment of the promise made here, then Jesus can never be pinned against Paul or Peter or John or Jude or any of the other New Testament authors. You have some in the church today or in the world today that wanna isolate the teaching of Jesus and then rule out either all of or segments of the revelation of the New Testament. But Jesus is making a promise here that when the spirit comes, he's going to guide the apostles into all the truth, the record of which is recorded for us in the New Testament. And that means that the New Testament epistles expound on, exposit and unpack the revelation concerning Christ. And that means that you can never separate the the gospels from the, the epistles. They are in perfect accord and harmony with one another. The epistles are just as authoritative as everything Jesus said. So these are significant implications that draw from this portion of scripture and shape a lot of the error that is rampant in the church today. Now, another distinguishing feature of the ministry of the Spirit is the glorification of Christ. And so we've seen first the enabling ministry of the Spirit that he enables us to comprehend the truth, to live in light of the truth, and to engage faithfully in the ministry of the truth. We saw second, the ministry, the speaking ministry of the Spirit, that the Spirit infallibly guided the disciples into all the truth concerning Jesus. And now third, and finally, the glorifying ministry of the Spirit we see the glorifying ministry of the Spirit, whereby the Spirit glorifies Christ by means of the truth. Look at verse 14. It says there, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. This is the primary aim of the Spirit. This is the Spirit's primary ministry, his primary work to glorify Christ. And he glorifies Christ by taking of that which is Christ's and disclosing it to the disciples. So the Spirit's aim and mission is to glorify Christ by means of revealing the truth concerning him. And yet, what was the primary aim of Jesus? It's to glorify the Father. John 17, 4. Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So the son came into the world to glorify the father and he glorified him by completing his mission. The son then ascends to the father's right hand and sends the spirit. And the spirit comes and glorifies the son. And as the son is glorified, he is glorified to the glory of who? God the Father, as the supreme revelation of the Father. And so the teaching of verses 14 and 15 is intensely Trinitarian. Because as soon as Jesus declares, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you, he says, verse 15, 
All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Jesus declares he will take of mine and disclose it to you, and then he feels it's necessary to say, all that the Father has are mine, that's why I told you he will take of mine and disclose it to you. There is wonderful, glorious unity and harmony expressed here within the context of the Trinity. And so I want you to follow this. The Son possesses all things that belong to the Father. The Spirit then takes of that which is the Son's and makes it known, and this reveals the glories and honor of Christ. But since everything the Spirit takes of the Son belongs to the Father, it simultaneously reveals the glories of Him and really fulfills Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. And we all said, amen. amen. So the spirit has the primary aim to glorify Christ. And he glorifies Christ by means of the truth. And as Christ is glorified, it works to the glory of the father. And I want to bring this down into our sanctification. And I want to highlight the relationship between the glory of Christ and our spiritual growth. Especially since John 15, 8 says this, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we participate in God being glorified and we participate in that by being conformed into the image of Christ. This is the goal of the Christian life, to be conformed into the image of Christ, to bear fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And we know it's the goal of the Christian life because Romans 8.29 says this, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The whole goal and purpose of salvation is to conform you into the image of God's son to the glory of God. And so the question for us is this, how does that happen? How does that happen? And what's the relationship between that process of being conformed into the image of Christ and the glory of Christ. And to ground this discussion, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, turn there. Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 really captures the essence of this and allows us to then unpack this a little bit so we can understand the, the dynamics of our spiritual growth. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You see that? Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so as we behold the glory of Christ, we are transformed into his image from one level of glory to the next, which means that we need to behold the glory of Christ. 
And whose responsibility is it to put the glory of Christ on display? It's the spirit of God. And to unpack this further, I'm gonna read a paragraph from the systematic theology biblical doctrine. And I'm gonna break it up into some smaller bite-sized parts, but I want you to hear this because it expresses this so well. And I think you'll find it both insightful and even worshipful. It says this, when the believer apprehends the glory of Christ and to apprehend is to engage the mind. When the believer apprehends the glory of Christ with the eyes of faith, the sight of his beauty satisfies his soul in such a way that he does not go on seeking satisfaction in the false fleeting pleasures of sin. You see, as we see the the glory of Christ, we find that the, the, the beauty of Christ drives out lesser desires. This is sometimes called the power of a superior pleasure or the power of a superior affection. We see the the glory of Christ and are attracted to his glory. And as we see that glory, we find ourselves wanting to lay aside lesser and even sinful things. Whereby we apprehend the glory of Christ with the mind, then desire him with the affections and then act with the will. It goes on, quote, just as in regeneration, when the spirit shines into the sinner's heart, the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ, that's salvation, overcoming spiritual blindness by awakening souls to the filth of sin and the loveliness of Christ. So also does the spirit work in progressive sanctification, strengthening that holy disposition created in regeneration. And so in regeneration, the spirit of God creates in us a holy disposition, a a, a disposition that desires holiness and righteousness and, and obedience to Christ. And that disposition in us is strengthened as we're exposed to the glory of Christ. As we see his honor and his glory, that new disposition in us that longs for holiness is fed and fueled. It goes on, quote, the spiritual apprehension of Christ's glory conforms a believer's affections to the divine will, causing them to hate sin and love righteousness. Then sanctified affections direct the will in such a way that it desires the righteousness it has come to love and repudiates the sin it has come to hate. Finally, The internal transformation is brought to fruition externally as the sanctified will issues forth in holy living. And so conformity to Christ begins on the inside. It's a work the spirit of God is doing on the inside. And as our mind apprehends his glory, the glory of Christ, that is, our desires are changed and our will is triggered to live a life consistent with that glory. And as that takes place, we're ever more transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. And as I said earlier, posing this question, who is it that puts the glory of Christ on display? It's the spirit of God. 
And so the spirit glorifies Christ and he does so by means of the disclosure of him in the written word. And we're conformed into that glory to the glory of the father, which is why Jesus prays in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so whenever someone claims the spirit is active in some way, ask yourself this, is Christ being glorified? Is Christ being glorified? And is the, the display of his glory producing holiness and obedience in those who are beholding that glory? Because if neither of those things are happening, then it's not the work of the spirit. And so if the spirit has been at work in your heart, then you now have greater discernment with respect to grasping and understanding and even identifying the true ministry of the spirit. You've seen his enabling ministry, that he enables us to comprehend the truth, to live in light of the truth and to engage in the ministry of the truth. You've seen his speaking ministry, that he has spoken only that which he's been given to speak, that he spoke inerrantly, infallibly, and authoritatively, and that he continues to speak through the written word, that as the written word is read and preached and taught, the spirit of God is speaking in that word, through that word. And you've seen the the glorifying ministry of the spirit, that he glorifies Christ, that the glorification of Christ results in our spiritual growth and that he glorifies Christ to the glory of God the Father. And with that, we're gonna sing a song that we would normally sing prior to the preaching of God's word, where we would ask the Lord to speak through his word. But as we sing this song, we're going to be singing it, and it's really a prayer asking God to bless all future exposures to the word of God, all all future exposures to the preaching of God's word, and even praying that God would accomplish the, the prayer of this song, not just here at Grace Life Church, but around the world to the glory of Christ and ultimately to the honor and glory of God the Father. But, but, but before we do that, let's pray and then ask the Lord to bless this. Well, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. What a portion of scripture We are so grateful to be in the gospel of John at this time in our lives. Father, we are so grateful for the ministry of the Spirit, so grateful for his work in glorifying Christ, so grateful for the completion of your revelation in the New Testament. And so, Father, we desire for Christ to be glorified, We desire for the spirit to be powerfully and abundantly active in our midst. And we long for all of that because we long to see you glorified. And so Father, as we sing this song, hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.